Welcome to the December 2008 Respiratory Care Podcast. I am Dean Hess, editor of the journal. This month we publish five editorials, eight original research papers, a review, two case reports, a teaching case, a letter, and three book reviews. Sarah, tell us what we can expect in this issue of the journal. Cabo de Vila and Chatburn from the Cleveland Clinic present Mid-Frequency Ventilation Unconventional Use of Conventional Mechanical Ventilation as a Lung Protection Strategy. The objective of this study was to investigate the theoretical and practical basis of higher-than-normal ventilation frequencies. The authors used an interactive mathematical model of ventilator output during pressure control ventilation to predict the frequency at which alveolar ventilation is maximized with the lowest tidal volume for a given pressure. They then tested their predicted optimum frequencies and tidal volumes with various lung compliances and higher than normal frequencies with a lung simulator and five mechanical ventilators. Compliances between 10 milliliters per centimeter of water and 42 milliliters per centimeter of water yielded tidal volumes between 4.1 milliliters per kilogram at an optimum frequency of 75 cycles per minute and 6 milliliters per kilogram at an optimum frequency 27 cycles per minute. The intrinsic positive end expiratory pressure at the optimum frequency was always less than 2 centimeters of water. All the ventilators, except the Hamilton Galileo, had an optimum frequency near 50 cycles per minute, whereas the predicted optimum frequency was 60 cycles per minute. The authors conclude that with these ventilators and pressure control ventilation, alveolar minute ventilation can be optimized with higher than normal frequency and lower tidal volume than is commonly used in patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. Next we have the paper incorporating teotropium into a respiratory therapist-directed bronchodilator protocol for managing inpatients with COPD exacerbations decreases bronchodilator costs by Drescher et al. from the Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. The objective of this study was to determine whether the addition of teotropium to a respiratory therapist-directed bronchodilator protocol affects bronchodilator costs for patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbation. The authors retrospectively analyzed data on the number and type of bronchodilator treatments administered to all patients admitted for COPD exacerbation during the three-month period from January through March 2006 after teotropium was added to a bronchodilator protocol and compared that data to a historical control period January through March 2004 before the teotropian was available in the author's hospital. They compare the costs of bronchodilator treatments, baseline patient characteristics, comorbidities, concomitant medications, length of stay, adverse effects, and in-hospital deaths. 
baseline characteristics, comorbidities, and concomitant medications were similar in the 2004 control group of 181 subjects and the 2006 intervention group of 174 subjects. The number of bronchodilator treatments per admission was significantly higher in the control period than in the intervention period. That difference correlated to a reduction in the combination therapy of short-acting inhaled beta agonist plus ipratropium, which decreased from a per-admission average of 6.7 in the control period to 1.9 in the intervention period. Calculated bronchodilator costs were significantly lower in the intervention period than in the control period. Hospital length of stay also significantly decreased from 6.5 to 5.5 days. There were no adverse events related to teotropium. Pulmonary-related in-hospital deaths were not significantly different between the two periods. The authors concluded that early addition of maintenance treatment teotropium to a respiratory therapist-directed bronchodilator protocol for patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbations reduced costs and produced no safety concerns. Wearing an N95 respirator concurrently with a powered air purifying respirator, effect on protection factor, comes from Roberge et al. from the National Personal Protective Technology Laboratory of the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The objective of the study was to determine if using an N95 filtering face piece respirator concurrently with a loose-fitting powered air purifying respirator, or PAPR, offers additional protection to the wearer. The authors used a breathing mannequin programmed to deliver minute volumes of 25 liters per minute and 40 liters per minute. They measured the baseline protection factor of the PAPR with its motor operational and then deactivated it to simulate mechanical or battery failure. They tested three replicates of three different N95 models. They glued each N95 to the breathing mannequin and obtained a minimum protection factor of 100 at 25 liters per minute. They then placed the PAPR on the mannequin and took protection factor measurements with the N95 plus PAPR combination at 25 liters per minute and 40 liters per minute with the PAPR operational and then deactivated. The N95 significantly increased the PAPR's protection factor even with the PAPR deactivated. The effect was multiplicative, not merely additive. The authors concluded that an N95 decreases the concentration of airborne particles inspired by the wearer of a PAPR. Next, we have the paper by Seville et al. from the United States Coast Guard Training Center in Petaluma, California. Its title is an assessment of a pilot asthma education program for childcare workers in a high prevalence county. 
The objective of this study was to assess changes in knowledge, attitudes, and intentions among child care workers before and after an asthma management education session. Between May and August 2004, the authors held five asthma education sessions for child care workers from Sonoma County, California. A total of 71 child care workers came to the sessions. Before and after each session, the authors assessed the participants' knowledge, attitudes, and intentions about asthma. Participant knowledge of asthma causes and intervention, asthma trigger control plans, ability to identify a child who needs medical attention for asthma, and comfort level with caring for a child with asthma increased significantly. Knowledge about asthma triggers, early warning signs, and asthma control plans was high before and after the asthma education intervention. The stated intentions to utilize their asthma knowledge were high before and after training, which may indicate willingness to implement knowledge and attitude change. The authors conclude that more advanced asthma education interventions are recommended for child care workers to promote comprehensive asthma management in the child care setting. Zhao and Newhart from the University of California, San Diego present Bench Study on Active Exhalation Valve Performance. They conducted a bench study of exhalation valve response to expiratory effort during the inspiratory phase. They studied four ventilators that have active exhalation valves. With an active test lung, they simulated various magnitudes of expiratory effort during the middle of the inspiratory phase. They measured the exhalation resistance and pressure overshoot during the expiratory effort and measured the pressure undershoot after the expiratory effort. The exhalation resistance of the Draeger Evita XL was higher than that of the Servo I, Newport E500, and Puritan Bennett 840. The magnitude of pressure overshoot during the expiratory efforts was not significantly different among the four ventilators with active exhalation valves. Pressure overshoot was significantly higher with the Puritan Bennett 7200 AE than with any of the other ventilators. The authors conclude that there is a significant difference in exhalation resistance between the Draeger Evita XL and the other three ventilators with active exhalation valves. Next, we have the paper, Aerosol Delivery of Recumbent Human DNAs, 1. In Vitro Comparison of a Vibrating Mesh Nebulizer with a Jet Nebulizer, by Johnson et al. from the University of Missouri, Columbia. The objective of this study was to evaluate the efficiency in delivering DNAs with newer generation vibrating mesh nebulizers. They compared a newer generation vibrating mesh nebulizer, the Omron MicroAir, to a Pari LC Plus with the Pari ProNeb Ultra Compressor. With the next generation pharmaceutical impactor, they determined aerosol particle distribution, mass output efficiency, nebulization time, 
and mass of DNAs that deposited on a filter during simulated breathing. The mass median aerodynamic diameter and geometric standard deviation of aerosol from the microair was equivalent to that of the PARI LC+. During simulated breathing, the microair had a higher total mass output efficiency than the PARI LC+, 88% versus 68%. Total nebulization time was shorter with the microair, 6.1 minutes versus 7.2 minutes. When nebulized to dryness, the mass of DNAs delivered to the filter was comparable with the microair and PARI LC+. The authors concluded that the microair could be employed as a portable nebulizer for DNAs therapy in patients with cystic fibrosis. Management of Tracheostomy, a survey of Dutch intensive care units, is presented by Velo et al. from the University of Amsterdam. The objective of this study was to determine tracheostomy management practices in Dutch ICUs and post-ICU step-down facilities. They surveyed the physician medical directors of all Dutch non-pediatric ICUs that have five beds or more suitable for mechanical ventilation. The survey asked for demographic information about the hospital and ICU setting and for information and opinions about tracheostomy management in the ICU and step-down facilities and the use of tracheostomy management guidelines. 44 of the 69 ICUs responded. 64% of the respondent ICUs only deflate the cuff when the patient is breathing spontaneously without assistance from the ventilator. 59% do not routinely change the tracheostomy tube. Almost half use inner cannulas in tracheostomy tubes. Overall intensivists were most involved in the follow-up of discharged tracheostomized patients. In the non-academic hospitals, specialized ICU nurses were more often involved. 64% indicated they have no guideline for managing discharged tracheostomized patients. There was a diversity of opinion on whether the tracheostomy tube should be removed at once or after downsizing. The authors concluded that there were large differences in tracheostomy management among Dutch ICUs. Chemical and physical compatibility of levalbuterol inhalation solution concentrate mixed with budesonide, ipratropium bromide, chromalin sodium, or acetylcysteine sodium is presented by Bonasaya et al. from Sepracor in Marlborough, Massachusetts. The objective of this study was to determine the chemical and physical compatibility of levalbuterol with ipratropium bromide, chromalin sodium, acetylcysteine, and budesonide. The authors mixed one dose of levalbuterol inhalation solution concentrate with one dose of ipratropium, chromalin, acetylcysteine, or budesonide. Immediately after mixing the two drugs, and again after 30 minutes at room temperature, the authors visually inspected the admixtures, 
measured their pH, and conducted high-pressure liquid chromatography. There was no evidence of physical incompatibility with these drug combinations. With all the admixtures, both drugs were chemically stable for at least 30 minutes. Admixture pH had not changed significantly at 30 minutes. Drug recovery was 93 to 103% of the initial or control values. The authors concluded that the two drug admixtures they studied were compatible for at least 30 minutes at room temperature. Next, we have a review titled The Obesity Hypoventilation Syndrome by Powers from the Duke University Medical Center. The obesity hypoventilation syndrome is a disorder in which an obese person with normal lungs chronically hypoventilates. The obesity impairs ventilatory mechanics, increases the work of breathing and carbon dioxide production, causes respiratory muscle dysfunction, and reduces ventilatory response to hypercapnia. Sleep-disordered breathing is present in most patients with the obesity hypoventilation syndrome. When non-invasive ventilation can be successfully introduced, hypoventilation can usually be corrected. Weight loss in those with morbid obesity is the desirable long-term solution to treating the obesity hypoventilation syndrome. This paper concisely reviews the physiologic factors that lead to obesity hypoventilation syndrome and discusses therapies for it. The first of two case studies this month is Heliox with Inhaled Nitric Oxide, a novel strategy for air trapping in preterm neonatal ventilation. The authors are Fatak et al. from East Yorkshire in the United Kingdom. The authors described the combined use of inhaled nitric oxide and Heliox as a rescue therapy for a critically ill infant with localized interstitial pulmonary emphysema and pulmonary hypertension. Conventional interventions were ineffective, not feasible, or unlikely to take effect in time during this infant's acute critical illness. The authors added Heliox based on its known pulmonary effects and inhaled nitric oxide to improve oxygenation after echocardiographic evidence of high right ventricular pressure. The infant made a full recovery. The authors suggest that this is the first case report of Heliox and inhaled nitric oxide used simultaneously in localized interstitial pulmonary emphysema. The second case report this month is by Calvano et al. from the Brook Army Medical Center in Houston, Texas, and is titled, Use of a High-Flow Oxygen Delivery System in a Critically Ill Patient with Dementia. A 92-year-old woman with delirium and dementia was treated in the intensive care unit for multilobar pneumonia with severe hypoxemia. Attempts to oxygenate the patient failed because she was unable to tolerate various facial and nasal masks. The authors then tried a high-flow nasal cannula, which she tolerated well, and she had marked improvement in gas exchange and quality of life. 
The patient had severe health care-associated pneumonia accompanied by delirium and hypoxemia. It became apparent that the patient's death was imminent, and the goal of therapy was palliative. She had previously clearly expressed a desire not to undergo intubation and mechanical ventilation. In a situation where the patient was agitated and unable to tolerate a mask, the high-flow cannula improved her dyspnea, oxygenation, tolerance of oxygen therapy, and comfort at end of life. Tidal volume limitation is an accepted strategy for mechanical ventilation of patients with acute lung injury and ARDS. With low tidal volume ventilation, there is a potential for respiratory acidosis unless the respiratory frequency is appropriately increased. Typically, respiratory rate is limited to 35 breaths per minute due to concerns related to autopeep. Morellis Capadavella and Chatburn introduce a new ventilatory strategy that they call mid-frequency ventilation. This approach uses a conventional ventilator, pressure control ventilation, tidal volumes of 4 to 6 milliliters per kilogram, and respiratory frequency greater than 35 breaths per minute. The results of this study are intriguing. However, as pointed out in the editorial by Hardin and Harris, it remains to be seen whether this approach will prove useful for lung protective ventilation. Clearly, clinical studies will be required before this approach can be fully endorsed. Teotropium is used in maintenance treatment of COPD, but short-acting bronchodilators are usually used during an exacerbation, and there are no guidelines on when to start it following an exacerbation. It is against that background that the paper by Drescher et al. is of interest. This paper will also be of interest to respiratory care managers whose departments use respiratory therapist protocols in the care of patients receiving inhaled bronchodilators. The protocol used in this study calls for use of teotropium in the initial treatment of inpatients with COPD, addition of formoterol if the patient does not show improvement, and short-acting beta agonists as necessary. As pointed out in an accompanying editorial by Tashkin, this study is limited by its retrospective design. However, these results could lead to cost-effective changes in the care of patients with COPD exacerbations. The N95 mask and PAPR are important personal protective equipment worn by healthcare providers for respiratory protection. They are rarely worn together. The results of the bench study by Roberge et al. suggest that the N95 mask provides additional protection when used with the PAPR, particularly if the PAPR should fail. In a comprehensive editorial, Radonovich et al. point out that it is difficult to generalize the results of this paper because the authors glued the mask to the face of the mannequin. The editorial also raises several provocative questions related to respirators and their protection against routine exposures to airborne pathogens. The importance of asthma education interventions for parents of children with asthma is well accepted. Seville et al. extend this concept from parents to child care workers and preschools. They found that an educational initiative increased child care providers' familiarity with the components of an asthma trigger control plan. As pointed out in the editorial by Massini and Krishna Sawami, asthma education can be provided to the asthma community of parents, the immediate family, 
babysitters, teachers, coaches, clergy, co-workers, and others. In traditional ventilators, the exhalation valve was fully closed throughout the inspiratory phase. Most current generation ventilators use an active exhalation valve that allows gas to be released from the exhalation valve during the inspiratory phase if the patient makes an active expiratory effort. Zhao and Newhart found that the pressure overshoot during simulated active exhalation was less in ventilators with an active exhalation valve than in an older ventilator without this feature. They also report that pressure overshoot and undershoot when measured at the proximal airway occur even with active exhalation valves. However, the clinical importance of these findings is difficult to infer from a bench study. Perhaps most important is that exhalation valve performance on modern ventilators is superior to that of previous generation ventilators. Inhaled recombinant human DNAs improves clearance of secretions in patients with cystic fibrosis. The pharmaceutical company that distributes DNAs recommends the Hudson T Updraft 2, Marquest Acorn 2, Pari LC Plus, Pari Baby, or durable side stream nebulizer. Mesh nebulizers may offer greater convenience for the patient, but their efficiency in delivering DNAs has not been determined. Johnson et al. report that the MicroAir, a mesh nebulizer, is convenient, efficient, and has an output comparable to the PARI LC+. Because this was a bench study, further studies are needed to establish the clinical effectiveness of the microair to administer DNAs in patients with cystic fibrosis. In a survey of Dutch ICUs, Velo et al. report large differences in tracheostomy tube management as it relates to cuff management, tracheostomy tube changes, and decannulation. Although this survey was conducted in Europe, this variability likely also occurs in North America and elsewhere around the world. Published tracheostomy management guidelines are needed. Because medications are frequently combined in the nebulizer cup, it is important to determine their chemical and physical compatibility. Bonasaya et al. evaluated mixtures of levalbuterol with ipratropium, chromalin, acetylcysteine, and budesonide. They found that the two drug admixtures were compatible for at least 30 minutes at room temperature, which is important information when these drug combinations are used. It is well known that there is an obesity epidemic in North America. It is important for the readers of the journal to familiarize themselves with these problems, which often have respiratory implications. One such problem is obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Powers reviews the effects of obesity on pulmonary function, discusses the relationship between sleep apnea and the obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and discusses the treatment of this disorder. The case report by Fatek et al. describes the combined use of Heliox with inhaled nitric oxide in the care of an infant with localized interstitial pulmonary emphysema and pulmonary hypertension. Although novel and intriguing, the need for such a combination of gases is likely extremely rare. In an accompanying editorial, Bettet appropriately raises concerns about the safety of this combination therapy and recommends a systematic approach to the application of novel therapies and their combinations to clearly know which work and which do not. 
High-flow humidified oxygen by nasal cannula has received much clinical enthusiasm in recent years. This has occurred despite lack of controlled trials of benefit or reported mechanisms to explain its benefit. For example, is this just another way of delivering high-flow oxygen, or does it also result in continuous positive airway pressure? Calvano et al. used a high-flow nasal cannula with a patient who required a high fraction of inspired oxygen but could not tolerate a nasal or facial mask. This improved the patient's arterial oxygenation, but unfortunately offers little guidance regarding the appropriateness of more widespread use of this therapy. This month's teaching case by Agarwal et al. is entitled Pulmonary Masses in Allergic Bronchopulmonary Aspergillosis Mechanistic Explanations. This case makes the teaching point that allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis can present as pulmonary mass lesions and should be considered in the differential diagnosis of patients with asthma. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.